and action. Hello out there to all our 34 Circe podcast. And cut. <laughs> Hello out there to all our 34 Circe Salon podcast listeners. I'm Don Sam Alden. And I'm Sean Marlon Newcomb. Thank you so much for following this podcast and for your support for programs that explore the untold stories of female agency and adventure throughout history. This program is more than just something that we love doing, and we really deeply love it. It's also a mission for us. And we'd love for it to be a mission for you as well. So we've created an account on Patreon, a fundraising website, in order to help us fund the podcast and some other really great, really fun projects that we have planned. So if you're able, please go over to patreon.com slash 34 Circe and pledge your support. You can do a one-time donation or a monthly subscription. And any amount, even a dollar, helps fulfill the mission to help make matriarchy great again. So thank you for taking the time to listen to us in this exciting little commercial spot that we've given you. So <laughs> now on to the show. And Welcome to the 34 Welcome to Make Matriarchy Great Again. And welcome everyone to the 34 Circe Salon. This is Make Matriarchy Great Again. I am Sean Marlon Newcomb and I am here with Don Sam Alden. Welcome, welcome everyone. And we have a very wonderful topic today. Um, we're going to be talking about the role of women in ancient China. Uh, we'll define the terms of the period. And we have um, quite the honor and uh, privilege of having with us Professor Ping Yao, who will talk with us about it. Hello, uh, hello, Ping. How are you? Hi, Xiang and Dong. Nice to meet you here. Um, yeah. I'm doing fine. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. We are thrilled to have you. Uh, doc, uh, professor Yao is a professor of history at the California State University of Los Angeles. And um, and you mentioned, which we're very excited about, um, that you have a book coming out at the end of December? Mm. Uh, by Rutledge, yes. The title is Women, Gender, and Sexuality in China, A Brief History. And it's mostly like a textbook for college students and graduate students. Terrific. Well, we will definitely have to have you back to talk a little bit more about that. But oh, yeah. uh, today we're talking about an earlier era than you generally speak about. So we appreciate you uh, you doing the extra legwork to um, to be able to to talk about this particular era. But um, Sean, do you want to dive in? Absolutely. What? So we're, we wanted to talk, we, we had some questions. I had seen um, uh, Professor Yao Ping at a, a uh, seminar, a lecture at the Getty, talking about the roles of women and the ancient world in different parts of the world. And we were curious, I mentioned to Dawn about it, uh, to dive a little bit further into what the role, what the roles for women were like in ancient China, and ancient being defined as uh, we're talking uh, the first dynasties. What? Let's just so we're on the same page. Uh, thing. What would be? What would you define as that period of the earliest? You know, sort of recorded information we have in terms of Chinese history. Um, recorded information we have. I would say. Um, well, the Xia Dynasty, the Shang and the Zhou, right? Um, mm -hmm. But in terms of Archaeological evidence is we probably only have the Shang Dynasty, the earliest, uh, let's say, 17th century to 11th century BCE. Mm. The Shang Dynasty was recorded in uh, historical record by Sima Qian in the Han Dynasty, but we 
don't really have uh, much archaeological evidence of the dynasty. Mm. And that's um, an earlier dynasty that we don't... The earliest. Um, okay. Of course, before that, we have uh, the Neolithical period. Um, there's some, a few writing symbols exist, but we also have archaeological evidence about how they lived their lives. Mm-hmm. What do we know, um, just in a sort of a general sense, kind of um, the gender roles or the, the kind of gender relations in these earliest periods? What, just to sort of like to start us off, what do we generally know about, um, you know, in terms of representation, let's say, in terms of power, in terms of political power, or in terms of uh, rights and privileges? What were women's lives like for these very early periods? Well, um for the Neolithical period, I mean, women played uh, uh, important roles both in the Neolithical period and then during the first three dynasties. Um, in the Neolithical period, uh, they, uh, I would say they played a role in almost every aspect of their communities. Um, we have evidence from uh, burial sites from this period um, we found that women were buried with spindle walls and potteries that indicate that their academic, uh, economic contributions were in textile, pottery making, and cooking. But of course, we know they carried the babies, they mothered the children, they cared for elders, and managed the household affairs. However, we don't really have any evidence about whether they fought in the wars, but they probably did because the Shang royal women were known to be very skilled in a battlefield. So, ah, how, how is that? How do we know that about them? Like, what what do we have? What stories or what um, particular evidence do we see about them? Ah, uh, you mean the, as, bad, as warriors, the, as, the Shang dynasty the Shang. women? Yeah, right. Well, we have both written records in the um, Oracle Bone uh, Divination inscriptions. Uh, we also have um, archaeological evidence. For example, um, at the Gebi Center, I think we talked about um, Lady Hao, uh, the queen of uh, King Wu Ding. Um, Lady Hao lived around uh, 1200 BCE. And she was particularly a dynamic woman. Uh, she was buried with weapons. So we know for sure she was a warrior. But also in terms of written record, uh, we found the uh, inscriptions talking about her as a chief general of the royal army. And she commanded large-scale expeditions. Lots of uh, uh, divination records uh, survived. Uh, we learned that one battle against a tribal, uh, tribal state army um, in, the, in the south of the Shang Dynasty involved coordination between King Ding and Lady Hao on a two-pronged two, uh, front. In another battle, Lady Hao commanded 3,000 royal soldiers. She was joined by 10,000 militia troops, and together they successfully fought off a tribal state from the West. And this was the largest military force the Shang court ever amassed. And wow. the biggest achievement in Lady Hao's military career was her expedition against the tribal state Tu in the north. And um, because during that second half of the 13th century BCE, the state who constantly harassed uh, Shang uh, allied tribal states, and they stole their harvests, they stole their slaves, and they, they seized their land. So the king um, uh, issued the order and asked Lady Hao to uh, lead the uh, expedition, and Lady Hao took the lead in the war effort, eventually led to the state, the two states' surrender. So she was, <laughs> she was very important 
uh, to the shamans. Uh, yeah, quite yeah. accomplished on the battlefield as well. Uh, definitely. She was also a diviner uh, for the Shang court. If you're a diviner, uh, we consider you are a, a cabinet member um, of the court because um, you make decisions based on the results of the divination, right? So oh. you participated decision-making of the Shang court. Was that a common... That's really fascinating. Was that a common... Uh, role in the courts in the uh, in the early Chinese dynasties to have a diviner, someone who would literally be on your advisory staff, and you would look to the diviner. What do you see? You know, what portents do you see in the future for us? That sort of thing. Right. So definitely, we consider diviners as an advisory on uh, on member of the advisory board. But all, it, it, for sure, the king had the final say. Uh, for the uh, result, right? The diviner uh, would ask questions, record the questions, and re- record what uh, what the king's uh, reading of the results. So they, um, to say they are uh, members of uh, the advisory board is the uh, perfect description. I don't think he, uh, these people made the final say. But right, the, right. right. But, uh, but a king would consult with, or a queen, right. I would imagine, would consult with the people around him or her. Um, totally. Yeah, totally. before making a, a big decision. Yeah, that makes sense. Totally, totally. yeah. So, yeah, big deal. <laughs> nice, uh, um, nice. Would, I'm sorry, John, please. No, go, so I was going to say, so we have, so we have, she is living or, Historical evidence, rather, that mm-hmm. um, that women did rise to these positions and were present in um, in the particular aspects of life that came along with the military. Do do we know how, or what do we know of how people around her uh, responded to her role as this kind of warrior? Was this something that was common and accepted, appreciated? Was it something which caused friction or tension? Was she thought to have been behaving in a way that a woman shouldn't? Or or that was that a kind of behavior that was expected, that one would have expected from many women at that time? Um, this is an excellent question. Um, we, of course, we don't have much evidence to um, say whether people resented um, her position or not, but the fact that she commanded an uh, army for, I think, about 20 years um, uh, shows that, uh, you know, this was accepted. Right? Mm-hmm. Right. And so that, that, that I would say, yeah, it was uh, accepted. And, and when she died, uh, uh, she was buried with weapons and human, even human sacrifices and lots of treasures. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Human sacrifices. <laughs> wow. Okay. Would that, because I know she mentioned that and you mentioned slaves. Was that a very common, because uh, slavery, of course, in the ancient world was very common. Was that a common practice in the era of slavery uh, or and human sacrifice, I guess? The Sun Dynasty was a common practice of um, uh, human sacrifices. Um, slaves, but also war uh, prisoners, um, captives, they were sacrificed. But it was n- not the case during the Zhou Dynasty, which is uh, from 1050 to, say, 221 BCE. What what was the change? Why was there a change between the the two? Um, I think it's a probably different belief system. Mm-hmm. They they are definitely two group different uh different group of people. Oh, okay. So different. Uh, okay. So like a literally different sort of from cultural. different region. Oh, yeah. okay. Very the, fascinating. The fascinating. Tribe. Uh, yeah, overthrown the Shang and then, you know, um, established a new dynasty. 
did did that change the role of women at all between the two? I mean, was there a difference in terms of was there still space for a, a, a warrior woman or an advisory woman in that next dynasty? Uh, excellent question. I really, I really think there's a shift in terms of women's position. Um, women, I there's no written. In archaeological evidence that women were royal, uh, uh, warriors at all, but women didn't have power. Um, when uh, we found evidence that when their husbands were away, women were given uh, queens uh, were given authority to uh, confer uh, official titles and give presents and hosting ceremonies and everything. So women did have power and uh, were active in public spheres. However, uh, they were not as worshipped or respected as the Shang Dynasty women. Um, one example is uh, how women were, um, in, to what extent women in, were included in ancestor worship. Um, so in the uh, Shang Dynasty, for example, um, I think it's uh, most queens who gave birth to a son would be included in ancestor worship cycle, um, but that was not the case in the Zhou Dynasty. Um, Interesting. That's an so, interesting change, uh, yeah. There's a, so one example is in the Zhou Dynasty, women were clearly uh, elim gradually eliminated from elaborate rituals, and only 7% of the surviving bronze ritual vessels for ancestors were dedicated to women. To women. And female ancestors during... Uh, the Shang Dynasty, 97% uh, of them uh, were sacrificed on their, in their own right. But during the Zhou Dynasty, only 64% of the women were worshipped uh, individually. Okay. And first of all, by the Eastern Zhou Dynasty, only 16% of the sacrifices to women were made individually. Wow. wow. So yeah. we, can, we can really see that, can that see change. Yeah. yeah. So, and then, so wife then be, became subsumed into their husband's sacrifices. But of course, later on during the Han Dynasty, female ancestors were basically excluded from having their individual rights completely. So you really see that when patriarchal order was established, women's uh, uh, position and status declined dramatically. Fascinating. Fascinating. I don't know if, if this is something that you can even answer, but I'm kind of curious as to how much, um, how much interaction with the surrounding world um, you know, do we have any? Do we have any evidence that there was interaction with, with, um, with other cultures, say like India or um, further west in in um, sort of in the the steppes region, the Mongolian region, stuff like that. I'm I'm curious to see if a lot of this um, if this change was happening, sort of in a bubble or if there were, was there an exchange of ideas and practices? Um, yeah, good question. I, I, I don't think we have any, much evidence about the in, interactions with other earlier civilizations. Okay. Uh, but they de definitely interact with other tribal groups or ethnic groups. Um, especially during the Shang Dynasty, for example, right. the king would uh, take a wife, a wife from different uh, tribes. So uh, he would have more than uh, the, we would say the marriage practice is polygamy 
with right. meaning yeah. one man with multiple wives, but polygamy in later period would be one man uh, marries one wife and multiple concubines. But in the Shang Dynasty, the Shang King took wives from different tribes. Interesting, and these it sounds very much like. Those are political alliances, right? Definitely political yeah. alliances. So you would not yeah. attack these. <laughs> right. Make them family, and then yes, yeah, and then chances are are less likely that they'd attack you, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Would that have been Would that have been acceptable for common people also? In that, as we move from that era, was polygamy an accepted uh, marriage practice for the culture initially, and then? Also, when they change from wife and concubines, does that also change the general cultural practice? Or or was it simply that just the very powerful could have multiple wives? In other words, what was what were kind of the marriage standards that you know of from those cultures and how did they develop? What were women's roles in terms of that? Were they one among many or were they single monogamous relationships? Um. Well, um, there's definitely a difference between Shang and Zhou. Uh, during the Shang Dynasty, uh, not only the king kings but also uh, noble uh, men took multiple wives. Uh, but during the Zhou Dynasty, there's a ideological change in terms um, the perception of yin and yang, right? So. Uh, yeah, yeah. I wonder. I wondered if there was anything that we could trace to why that this this change would have been made. So that's fascinating. Right. Sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. So the, the if if you follow the ideal of yin and yang, then you have one yin and a one yang, you know, complementary to each other. So that's I think uh, is the ideological background. Uh, of a one wife, one man, one wife. But then, of course, men thought, you know, you need a, a more sexual partners to uh, ideally pass down uh, generations, have more children. But, you know, but definitely one man and one wife, but not multiple wives. It's very much based on the yin-yang perception. Could you say more about yin yang? I mean, most people were, most of us are familiar with the concept. You know, we see it, particularly if you are interested in martial arts, which I love, uh, you hear that concept a lot. But what would it be in this context in terms of man and woman, just to give the listeners a little bit more background? Oh, sure. I think um, yin and yang um, is probably the earliest philosophical. Uh, concept in Chinese history. Um, it, uh, um, you know, both Taoism and Confucianism developed um, this perception of yin and yang. Um, for Taoism, it, it, it evolved to explain uh, the uh, basic principles of the universe. And for Confucianism, it developed to explain um, human relations. Um, yin is, uh, uh, we reflect, uh, in Chinese character, it uh, means dark and moon, and soft and negative. Yang means uh, bright, the sun, strong. Um, but the universe the earliest perception of yin and yang considers the universe, um, the whole world, uh, is uh, consists of these two uh, forces uh, that is not necessarily opposite to each other, but complementary to each other that made the universe possible, made the world possible. Um, I don't know if that explains <laughs> That is that is a, a brilliant thumbnail sketch of a very complicated concept. So thank you. Yes, thank absolutely. You. So this is in, in terms of men and the women relationship, okay. then men is young, women is in, then, um, you know, women should follow men, but uh, not necessarily they're uh, 
you know, at least earlier Confucian uh, scholars believe men and women should be uh, complemented to each other in, in as, for example, in marriage. Right. In, in order for there to be balance, neither of the principles can dominate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh-huh. How how did those? Is there any indication of how those principles played out in marriage, or what? In terms of, I guess the question would be, in terms of rights in a household or rights in a culture, uh, they're complementary. But would a husband and wife have been able to have an equal right to, uh, you know, dispute or divorce or property? That's just kind of very basic stuff. What do we know? about that in terms of how that was looked at in a marriage? Um, yeah, excellent question. Um, in terms of uh, the household, I think the concept of, of yin and yang um, sort of reflect um, the fact that men should uh, you know, dominate outer space and women should dominate inner, uh, inner space, right? So women, uh, stays in a family, um, uh, take care, uh, take care of uh, family, uh, household affairs, and uh, uh, men um, go out and then serve the public and serve the state. Um, one thing is for sure when it comes to divorce. Um, traditionally, only men could uh, initiate a divorce, uh, not women. Um, of course, during the Tang Dynasty, uh, now I'm talking about a later period, during the Tang Dynasty, um, you can, uh, there was evidence women initiated divorce and they just, uh, uh, you know, uh, non-fault divorce agreement um, existed. But uh, in, during the earlier period, definitely, especially during the Zhou Dynasty, divorce were usually initiated by men. Uh, there was no uh, divorce divorce law uh, exists during the Zhou Dynasty, but uh, during the Han Dynasty, there was a book called the Book of Rights, uh, codified and idealized the Zhou practices. So. Uh, we know that's how that was how the Zhou people uh, uh, how their legal system worked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Um, so, so, so there. Oh, these, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I just want to mention the divorce law uh, stipulated in the Book of Rights. Um, men could uh, a man could uh, uh, divorce his wife. Only if he had one of the following seven reasons. The first reason is failure to obey the parents-in-law. That's the most important reason. Um, Two is barrenness. Three is licentiousness. Four, jealousy. Five, severe illness. Six, talkativeness. And seven, theft. What theft means stealing things from a man's uh, husband's household. Did Did you say six was talkativeness? Yes. If you oh, no, <laughs> <laughs> if you gossip too much. Ah, uh, okay. If you were telling um, the husband's secrets, uh, telling that around town, got it. Oh, okay. So, so not necessarily if she just if you if he just wanted her to not talk much. He couldn't just divorce her. Okay. Um. <laughs> so going a little bit backwards from that question, so then what were the practices for getting married? Uh, how much of, how, you know, and of course, I'm sure we, we only, we have the, the bulk of evidence that we have is about nobility and royalty and may not necessarily reflect the everyday practices of, you know, the, the, the ordinary um, man and woman. But um, but do we have um, do we have anything written down about how people got married in the first place? Um, yes, yeah, certainly. Um, the Book of Rights uh, also actually uh, define what kind of how do you su- uh, select spouse? Um, or first of all, uh, 
a marriage has to be arranged. Um, you have to have a, a matchmaker. And then you should have uh, uh, the, by having a matchmaker that ensures the, your future spouses have the same, uh, has the same family background. Um, in addition to that, the Book of Rights stipulates that there are five types of women you cannot marry. And um, so the first one is um, a woman whose family has, uh, oh, the first one is actually uh, a daughter of a rebel. And the second a daughter of a rebel? Yes. Oh uh, my goodness. <laughs> that's, that, sounds, that sounds actually pretty cool. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I think we need to, uh, we need to start a television series called a daughter of a rebel. <laughs> you want to ensure the stability of the, of, of the, the culture. Empire. Yeah, absolutely. And then uh, you should mar- not marry a sexually immoral person, a daughter of sexually immoral person. You should not marry a descendant of a criminal convict. And you should not marry a woman whose family has hereditary disease. Or uh, the final uh, uh, no-no is you should not marry the eldest daughter of a widower because then the daughter likely lost her mother at a young age and she presumably was not brought up right, you know. So these are the five, uh, we call the five unmarriables um, in Chinese. Um, so it's, but, it's, sorry, it's much more about not the woman herself, but the woman's family. And, okay. and yeah, her societal exactly. position, yeah. Exactly. Uh, John mentioned that uh, how they get married, uh, the book, the Book of Rights uh, stipulates six rights. Uh, you have to go through these six rights to get married. It's, of course, idealized procedures. And uh, only the, the final right, uh, the, the final one, when you, uh, it's the wedding, then you uh, have the couple finally uh, met each other. The first five rights, were all between the two families. The, 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 the bride and the groom never were involved. Interesting. So, and one would assume that because there is this, you know, step of six procedures that if one of them went wrong at any point, the whole thing would be called off. Right. But also meant that uh, the marriage is not really about the couple. It's about the right. family. Right. Yeah. 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 So um, the six rights are, the first one is the uh, called the receiving pre-betrothal gifts. So the prospective groom's envoy uh, presenting a formal proposal, basically matchmaker, say, okay, I uh, have this and that girl, uh, a boy is interested in your family, right? So that's the first one. The second one is asking name, uh, the prospective groom's envoy requesting the name and the date of birth of the prospective bride. And for the reason, which I'll mention number three, called the receiving auspicious result, which is confirming the bride and groom's compatibilities through divination of the prospective bride's information at the prospective Groom's ancestral altar. So your ancestors right. have to approve. And number four is receiving betrothal gift. So, um, of course, sending uh, engagement gifts to the bride's family. And number five is requesting a wedding date. Um, so the uh, groom's envoy usually would consult with the bride's family. Um, uh, groom's family's choice of the wedding day. So uh, all of these rituals are very elaborate. How do you walk? Uh, where do you stand? The family members, where do you stand? Um, it's uh, what, do you, what do you say? They're all very uh, 
sort of uh, script. And only the last one called Fetching the Bride in Person is when the groom come to, uh, comes to the bride's household to welcome and escort the bride to his household. That was when, that's when... They would meet for the first time, yeah. <laughs> well, on the books, they may have, they, you know, I would imagine that uh, probably they had ways to spy each other out before then, but officially that would be the first time they would meet. You mean spy right. each other out and if they weren't happy, they could get out of town? And they could just well, they could, yeah, I mean, they could I run was, away. I was thinking of that wonderful step of consulting the ancestors, you know, once they get the birth dates, consulting the names and the birth dates, consulting the ancestors. I mean, that's a beautiful opportunity for one side or the other to say, oh, you know what? The ancestors don't really like this. This is not an auspicious pairing. So, right. you know, right. with, with all honor maintained, we're just going to step away from this potential match. Yeah. yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. I, I was wondering just to, to step back uh, to the, the other end, to the divorce. And I was just wondering this, we had talked about in other cultural contexts of what, a woman could do or what would happen to a woman if she were divorced if there are no means of survival what would be what would be the recourse for a woman who gets who was divorced in this culture would she have gone back with her own family in other words how would she survive if she's if she were divorced in this era right um that's a really good question actually the book of rights also uh, mentioned uh, under certain conditions, you cannot divorce a woman. Um, we call the three uh, conditions. Uh, the first one is uh, the wife had a mourn for the parents-in-law, you know, the, the husband's parents-in-law. Uh, if she fulfilled the mourning duty, you cannot divorce her. And the second one is wife married into the household prior to its rise from poverty too well. So you cannot just divorce your wife and then marry a choppy wife. So Interesting. <laughs> once, once you're rich, you cannot do that. You, you can't oh, just cast her aside. That's fantastic. Yeah, but, that's but, but wait, though, but you could get another <laughs> wife or a concubine if you did rise, I'm guessing. Yeah, you can always uh, get a there, concubine, but you cannot there, get there's the workaround, Tom. That's what the, <laughs> yeah. that's the patriarchal workaround. The patriarchal workaround. There you go. But you don't get to strip her of her rights as your wife. So there you go. Yeah, yeah. And then there's a third one which Sean uh, mentioned. Uh, you cannot divorce her if she has no place to return. Okay. Well, that's that's very, I guess, yeah. compassionate, thoughtful. Um, right. Right. You can always take a concubine, but you cannot just divorce. But you wife. can't just throw her out on the street, right? Okay. Yeah. 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 So these are uh, defined in the Book of Rights in the Han Dynasty, but uh, we all believe that that's the Zhou Dynasty practice. Got it. Got it. So it wasn't formalized until this Book of Rights, but it is in. It is believed that. They were formalizing in this book practices that had been in existence for a while. Probably earlier, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. What um, what other kind of roles? I mean, we've talked about women in the, in the context of uh, marriage, and also a little bit in the context of rulership. But what what were kind of the roles for women? Uh, the common roles for women in these early dynastic cultures besides, or, or were there besides wife uh, in the sort of common classes or, you know, noble woman in the rural classes? Were there merchants? Were there scholars? Were there writers? That sort of thing. Were there priestesses? Were there, sure. yeah. Uh, priestesses for sure. Uh, merchants, um, we, I think the earliest record about a female merchant uh, who was very successful was the Qing dynasty, which is the third century. Um, we don't have much evidence of uh, successful female merchants earlier than that, but I, if she was successful in the third century, I am sure there were female merchants before her time. So, so, so then by and large, a woman's path was expected that she would 
get married. That was kind of was, yes. was that was that kind of the the sense Everyone that you should get married. That was the idea. Yeah, yeah. But but I would also add to that as a caveat because we tend to think, oh well, if she got married, then the only thing she did was you right. know sit at home and bear children, it, right. and you know unless it was a situation where this was a noble family where nobody had to work. Um, you know, even if women got married, that didn't mean that they weren't taking part in their family business. And that's, uh, that's what I was wondering. Yeah. So, I mean, do we yeah. know that that was so if the family business was some sort of commerce that they were involved in that? Because I think you had mentioned, um, uh, paying that they, the sphere of the woman's sphere was to be the domestic sphere to take care of those, those things at the home. So would that have been something that in a, business class family that she would that would have been what she's expected to do to be you know a, a part of the business or or would she still have just more been in the domestic space and supported her husband's business in that sense um later period um uh, for sure, we have a lot of evidence that women uh, act, uh, worked as merchants and you know owners of businesses, and, uh, but we don't have much evidence for Xia uh, Shangzhou period. Got it. Got it. We we uh, the Book of Songs um, recorded a lot of po- poems from the Zhou Dynasty. Clearly, women worked uh, in the fields. Uh, they cooked for uh, masters' families, households. They they gathered uh, food. Uh, they you know made clothes from scratch. Um, so they worked for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And okay. in and in vital, you know, I, I think in American society today we tend to look at look back at people and say, oh well, they cooked. You know, no big deal. But food production was mm-hmm. absolutely vital for survival. So if the women were in charge of food production or were the primary force in food production, that made that made them utterly vital to the survival of the of the culture and the civilization. Oh, definitely. Women also uh in if in a family they distribute food as well. So Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um the other thing that I wanted to to mention as we're talking about sort of business versus family that often um, often we see in other civilizations, we see uh, the cottage industry. So, for instance, early Roman, uh, in Roman times, when we say, well, the women were only responsible for the, the home sphere, the private sphere, that also meant running the cottage industries, things mm-hmm. like you know, spinning and uh, buying and selling uh, wool, uh, flax, the things, the the items that went into making fabric and then the finished fabrics. Uh, beer and alcohol production often was a cottage industry, so it happened inside the home. So, mm-hmm. you know, women would also have been involved with that kind of a business. Um, so, you know, when we say... Uh, that women were involved in everything that happened inside the home. I just want to remind our listeners that that didn't that didn't wall off the women from everything having you know that 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 didn't have to do with raising children. Quite the opposite, they often were running small businesses out of their homes. Um, I, yeah, I completely agree. And also, um, during the Western, at least the Eastern Zhou Dynasty, uh, tax were, taxes were collected by uh, two uh, sort of uh, two things. One is cloth, the other is uh, grain. So, who made made the cloth? The women, right? right. So, yeah. uh, they definitely uh, contributed to uh, the state economy. Right. Yeah. Yeah, both personal and on a larger scale, the the yeah. city state and the tribe's economy right. and economic health. Yeah, yeah. How were those? How were the city states structured? Uh, these were these are empire. These are dynasties. Obviously, there was uh, these are aristocracies. But what 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 was the administration like for the average citizen 
uh, and thereby what were women's rights like in the public sphere, not just with respect to their husbands, but out in the, how would they have expected to have been treated out in the, just out in the world? Out in, uh, and did they have any say in how things might be done to the extent that anyone did, obviously, in a government that's not a democracy? <laughs> uh, yeah, totally. Um, I agree. Um, well, the, we oh, we have evidence from the Shang Dynasty and the Zhou Dynasty, right? Uh, um, queens definitely had a huge power and say in court decisions and everything else. And during the Zhou Dynasty, uh, noble women and royal women uh, could. Uh, act on behalf of their husbands, but we don't have much uh, evidence about commoners. Uh, it yeah. just wouldn't have been recorded. Right, right. Yeah. So I, 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 I cannot say uh, too much about how commoners, uh, commoner women, um, their positions in public sphere. Do we know who educated the children in this time period? Um, um, sh- I think the uh, there's very good uh, extensive record about public schools. Or I would say state sponsored schools uh, as early as um, the Shang Dynasty. Um, we don't have much evidence about the Xia Dynasty, although Mencius, who lived during the 3rd century BCE, mentioned the Xia Dynasty had a state-sponsored school, but we only have uh, written other written evidence of that. But during the Xia Dynasty, uh, the inscriptions had the terms um, of Jiao, which means teaching, and xue, which means burning. And we also have evidence, like some divinations saying, oh, um, is it gonna be uh, raining when the students uh, came back from school? So clearly uh, uh, there's a, a, a school schooling activity. Wow, so there, there was a formalized education system. That's, it wasn't just um, parents uh, educating their children in their own homes. No, there's state-sponsored schools, and there are uh, uh, well-defined curriculums as well. Uh, They learn, of course, reading and writing. They learn uh, military skills, especially archery. Uh, They learn how to conduct and perform uh, religious rituals. Uh, They also learn ethics, how to respect your elderlies, and, you know, basically, I would say ethics studies and okay. to produce the goals, I think, the, of education are to produce capable and loyal men to support and defend the kingdom. So, yeah, there were um, definitely state-sponsored schools in the Shang Dynasty. And in the Zhou Dynasty was even more advanced because uh, we have more written evidence um, records about their school systems. There are two levels. One, uh, uh, at the state level, um, you have um, government-sponsored, state-sponsored schools that are called state schools, guoxue, and enrollees were mostly children of noble families. And the local government also sponsored uh, sponsored the schools for children of lesser social status. And these schools were called xiangxue, or local schools. So yeah, and they they learn very well-defined, they they have very well-defined curriculums for the kids. And I think, uh, of course, um, parents taught them as well. That's that's amazing uh, cultural aspect. It's an amazing foresight for a state and 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 how it looks at its citizens. So yes, yeah. Uh, commended. How would just because we're getting towards the time to wrap up? How 
How would you like to leave the listener with, in terms of the view of the role of women in this era, just to kind of wrap up, you know, what can we say about um, their, their power, their rights, their accomplishments? What would you like to leave the listener with about this? Um, yeah, thank you. Um, I would say um, women of Oli China uh, had a more uh, say and more power, uh, higher status than women of later period. Um, that's probably the takeaway from um, our conversation. All right, okay. then. All, All right. right, then. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Professor Yao, Professor Ping Yao. Um, we really appreciate uh, being able to talk with you about this. Oh, thank you for having me. It was a great fun. Absolutely. Some applause here. <laughs> Yay! And uh, yeah, and hopefully we'll be able to speak to you again um, in the new year once your book has come out, and you can tell us a little bit more. I know we asked you to sort of speak outside your area of expertise today, so hopefully we can have you back to to speak uh, more about. Uh, about subjects that are well within your sweet spot. <laughs> oh, thank you. I yeah, I'm sorry that I don't know too much about Odi China. I know. No, we uh, we, oh, we were we were asking thing. you to do the research and we really appreciate that uh, you were able to give us all this wonderful information and to educate our listeners about an area that they um, you know, that that uh, has not been talked about before in our podcast. So I'm really looking forward to uh, to branching out a little bit. Great, great. Thank you. Thank you. And, and thank you, Dawn, as always. Thank you, Sean. And this has been the 34 Circe Salon Make Matriarchy Great Again. We have been talking about women in ancient China with Professor Ping Yao. We will be back again very soon. Take care. Take care, everyone, and blessed be. <laughs> <laughs>